All right, let's spell hearts. Father God, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your word. And Lord, just speak to us this morning as we continue studying these things, these words that Amos has uh, given to the people of Israel. And Father, we pray that we would learn from them, Lord, that which you have for each one of us. And Lord, see, Lord, the bigger picture of all of these things. Uh, Lord, that you are in complete control. And yet, Lord, this world is in a mess and is heading toward judgment. Uh, Lord, help us to see these things, to understand and respond, Lord, as you would have us respond. Uh, Lord, we pray for our nation again. Uh, We just give you this time. Speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to carry on, obviously, our study in Amos. Last week we did an opening introduction session and managed to get through chapter 1 and the first couple of verses of chapter 2. Just to remind you again of the, the times of these things, Amos is speaking to the nation uh, during that period where uh, King uh, Azariah or Isaiah uh, was on the throne. Isaiah was also prophesying and speaking around about this time, uh, and so was Hosea. We've obviously gone through our study in Hosea. We've seen the things Hosea said, uh, predominantly to the northern kingdom, and Amos doing the same, uh, Isaiah predominantly to the southern kingdom. These are the kings of Judah, the green ones we mentioned before, the good kings uh, that followed the Lord. The rest of them didn't. And it's because of that the Lord said that he was going to bring judgment. If after the time of Solomon, from the time of Rehoboam onwards, there's, there was almost a period of uh, 100 years where the Lord was relatively silent until Joel steps on the scene and brings this incredible panoramic prophecy uh, regarding the future of the nation of Israel. In fact, the future of all things uh, are kind of tied up in that book of Joel. Incredible three chapters we went through uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, if we look at the southern kingdom, it's during the reign of Jeroboam II. Um, Hosea, again, the north, and Amos uh, also will be predominantly focused on the northern kingdom. So the kings of Israel uh, were the ones, not, you see, not, not a single good king amongst them. Every one of those kings rebelled against God, walked their own way. Amos was called to go to Bethel. Bethel was this place where, at the time of the division of the kingdoms, Jeroboam I had set up this golden calf, one of two that had been set up, trying to encourage people to go there and worship rather than going down to Jerusalem because the fear was, of course, if people went to Jerusalem, they may want to go back under the authority of Rehoboam, Solomon's son. He didn't want that, so he tried to prevent that. He said that anybody who wants to have a go at being a priest can be a priest, a little bit like today. Uh, didn't, need to be, didn't need to be called or anointed or appointed of the Lord. It was just if you fancied to go. Uh, And so the whole thing becomes an utter mess in the northern kingdom. Of course, those that followed the Lord went south. They went down and they... Many of them followed the Lord. The priesthood stays ministering in Jerusalem uh, through that time. Some good, some bad amongst it all. But... His mission was to go to Bethel, to this place that had become now synonymous with idolatry, and to proclaim that God was going to bring judgment, that the line had been crossed, nothing now was going to avert it. Uh, and Amos' predictions, by and large, came true within 30 years. Out of the over 100 prophecies that are contained within these chapters, almost all of them, just a handful, have yet to be fulfilled. Almost every prophecy that he gave came true with precision, with detail, as, of course, we find throughout Scripture. Bethel was a small town about 10 miles north of Jerusalem, so it's just into the northern kingdom, as it were. Uh, and it was the chief national religious shrine, as I said just a moment ago. Uh, and, of course, it was a sacred place because, you remember, that's where Jacob 
when he was on his way out of the land, going up to visit Uncle Laban. That's where he stopped one night, had a dream, and saw this ladder coming up uh, and uh, into heaven, these angels ascending and descending and so on. And so it becomes a, a special place, but uh, it also then becomes this place of idolatry. The reason for writing, uh, this is just from one of the, the commentaries, uh, and I just, just this is quite helpful. It was to announce coming judgment upon Israel because of their idolatry and sin. It was to make plain to the people of Israel what the demands of God's service truly are. You see, whilst salvation is entirely the work of grace, there are still standards that God sets. There are still do's and don'ts for Christians. We're to do all things without complaining and disputing. We're to watch the things that we say. There's many things that the New Testament gives us specifically about how our lives should be. And it was no different in the old. The old, of course, they had the law, and the law stated God's righteous standard. Of course, another reason here is to remind Israel that God cares for all nations. It wasn't just Israel that God was concerned about. And God exercises sovereignty over them all. Back in Genesis chapter 12, when God called Abraham, he said that he would be a blessing to the whole world, to every nation. Fourthly, to show that all nations are expected to respect such basic rules of human conduct as integrity, honesty, purity, and fairness. Some uh, liberal scholars and commentators have tried to make Amos a, a book all about social justice. It's very topical, very popular at the moment. Um, and that's not to deny that there is a lot of that that comes through. Amos certainly speaks about the unjustness in the land uh, and that that was something that was grieving God's heart and that because of that, God would bring judgment. The reason God brings judgment upon the surrounding nations, again, was because of their conduct. It was because of their lack of integrity and so on. It was because of the way they treated the poor. You know, we, we've come so far and yet we've not moved you know, because we have these same problems. And, of course, there are many, many things, fights for social justice today. And, you know, behind it all, generally, there's a, uh, a heart of compassion. There, of course, are other motives. There's other agendas that are being played out and pushed forward at the moment as well. But, of course, God does expect us to love our neighbor as ourselves. Fifthly, it was to show that cruel and humane treatment of one's neighbor will negate all worship. You know, you can't come to God and worship him on your terms and you then treat your neighbor with disdain. You know, God expects us to come with hearts that are loyal to him but are of love to those around us as well. And uh, John Wade, is the commentator that made these comments. And sixthly, he said, to remind Israel of Jehovah's faithfulness to his covenant and law and their accountability to a practical observance thereof. You know, God had given Israel this law. He was the, Israel was the only nation that God had given the law to. You know, yes, it's true that the Ten Commandments typically become a standard of law, particularly for the Western world, from the point that they were given, as those things were, were kind of... Um, uh, spread out around the world, but ultimately it was God giving this law to his people Israel, and therefore they were expected to obey these things. Now, we see in the first two chapters the judgment of eight nations, we'll talk about it in, the, in a moment again, uh, and then building from chapter 3 to 6, it's the guilt and punishment of Israel that is in view. And then uh, chapter 7 through uh, the first part of chapter 9, it's the symbols of approaching judgment. God gives some um, 
things for them to see, to look for, to observe, to know these things are coming. And then finally, as we find with most of these prophets, the minor prophets, they all have a section which deals with the future restoration. Although God speaks of judgment, God also makes clear that his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to restore, to uh, never let go, to leave Israel. Again, God that uh, keeps Israel doesn't slumber or sleep, uh, and he will not abandon them. And these promises we find through all the minor prophets. And the book ends with those. Uh, now, last week we went through looking at the prophecies of God's judgment on Damascus, of course, Syria, as we know today, Gaza, uh, we're familiar with that, uh, the southwest uh, area of uh, the land of Israel today, uh, Tyre or Phoenicia, um, Lebanon, as we would know it, Edom and Ammon and Moab, which kind of fall into Jordan uh, area and so on, as it is on the map, as we have it. Uh, and then finally, Amos will speak of judgment on Judah and Israel. Now, again, you can imagine as Amos is giving these, these judgments, pronouncing these things, the people of Israel would have been listening and going, oh, yeah, great, it's good that Damascus are going to be judged, and good that Gaza and, you know, and Tyre and Edom and Moab and Ammon, you know, it's good that they're going to get judged. And suddenly, it's as if the tables are turned and Amos says, says, yeah, but God's going to judge you too. And that's the real kicker here. That's what, in a sense, is kind of setting them up that they agree that God should judge the nations around about, but then their sin is exposed as well. We've said before, you know, our sin always looks worse on other people. You know, we always justify what we do in our own lives and we kind of make it okay. But when we see others do those things, well, that's... So just a reminder, chapter one, those nations we saw again, uh, Damascus, Again, uh, Gaza down the bottom, Tyre, Phoenicia up the top, Sidon, uh, 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 Tyre and Sidon, these two neighboring towns, uh, the cities in the, the Phoenician state. Uh, then uh, Edom right down the bottom there, the area of Esau where he settled, and then Moab, because the area that Ruth came from, and then the kingdom of Ammon as well. So those are the geographical areas you can see there. And now we're going to look at Judah and Israel going into chapter 2. So we're going to pick it up verse 4 from where we left last time. And so, again, the focus has always been, already been on the other nations. And now, verse 4, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four. Now, that's our opening statement. David Guzik makes this comment. He said, it hurts to see the same judgment formula applied against Judah, the people of God, as was applied against the previous six Gentile nations. It shows that Judah piled sin upon sin upon sin, just like the other nations. If you remember last time we said that expression, for three transgressions and for four, I mean, it's not literally meaning you did three things wrong and then you did one other. It's implying that there's a full measure and then it's overflowed. You kind of overflowed your cup of iniquity, as it were. God is now going to bring judgment. And the same thing now is said to God's people, as was said to these heathen Gentile nations that were full of iniquity and sin and so many things. Interesting, when we look at the reasons for judgment. For Damascus, we're told, because they'd threshed Gilead with, a threshing, with threshing instruments of iron. I mean, really, speaking of cruelty, the way that they had brought judgment or that they had uh, invaded and hurt other people. Of Gaza, it was because they carried away captives, the whole captivity to deliver them up to Edom. It's really merciless profiteering. They were taking people from the, the raids and things they'd done and the conquests, and they were just selling them. It was just to make money. It was to, to make themselves rich and wealthy. For Tyre, Phoenicia, again, because they delivered up the whole captivity to Edom, but remembered not the brotherly covenant, really speaking of betrayal. 
These things God is bringing judgment upon these nations for. Of Edom, because he did pursue his brother with the sword. And, there's two things, and did cast off all pity. And, third thing, he did tear perpetually. And, fourth thing, he kept his wrath forever. It just speaks of that hatred. In a sense, it's an irrational hatred, but that hatred that remained with Edom throughout his days toward particularly Israel, his brother. With Ammon, because they had ripped up the women with child of Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. And of course, murder is the principal thing. I mean, with all of these, there's a number of things we could cite, but these are the kind of principal reasons that God brings judgment. And then finally with Moab, because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. This is probably a little bit harder one to read to you from Adam Clark's commentary. He said this in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 26, when the kings of Judah, Israel, and Idumea joined together to destroy Moab, the king of it, despairing to save his city, took 700 men and made a desperate sortie on the quarter where the king of Edom was. And though not successful, he took prisoner the son of the king of Edom, and on their return into the city, offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall so as to terrify the besieging armies and cause them to raise the siege. Others understand that the son was sacrificed. Uh, the son that was sacrificed uh, was to be the king of Moab's own son. So those are the things. So really, with all of that, we see idolatry, cruelty, murder. But these are the reasons that God brings judgment upon these Gentile nations. Now look at the contrast as we come now to Judah and see what God says. So thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And here we have the because, this is the reason, because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. And their lies cause them to err, after the which their fathers have walked. So notice the reason that God says judgment is going to come upon them. It's not because of cruelty. It's not because of other things specifically. It's because they despise the law of the Lord. You see, God has a standard that he expects from his people for the light that they've been given. Romans twelve, Romans chapter 2, verse 12 says, For as many as have sinned without the law shall also perish without the law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Jerome many, many years ago, made this comment. He said, those other nations, Damascus and the rest, he upbraids not for having cast away the law of God and despised his commandments, for they had not the written law, but that of nature only. So then of them, he says, that they are corrupted all their uh, compassions and the like. In other words, they weren't compassionate. But like Judah, who at that time had the worship of God and the temple and its rites, and it received the law and commandments and judgments and precepts and testimonies is rebuked and convicted by the Lord for that it had cast aside his law and not kept his commandments. Wherefore, it should be punished as it deserved. You see, the nations who didn't know the Lord were judged according to their sin, to the light that they had, that which they knew. I mean, they knew that the things they were doing were wrong. And so God judges them according to those things. But for his own people, to whom he revealed his own character, who he revealed himself to at Sinai, God deals with them in a different way. Luke 
12 verse 48 says, For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. You see, God, again, expects a standard from his own people that he doesn't require from the unbelieving world. That's not to say the world won't be judged. Of course, we see that. We've seen six nations and the judgment foretold against them. But with his own people, the things that God reveals, there is an expectation. And again, we've been given knowledge, heavenly wisdom, and a light that we have to walk in. In Hebrews 10, it says, He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore a punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy, who has trodden under foot the Son of God, and has counted the blood of the covenant where he, wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and has done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that has said, Vengeance belongs unto me, I will recompense, says the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You know, those to whom light is revealed, who choose to walk contrary to that, will receive the stricter judgment. That's why Scripture speaks of pastors and those that teach will receive a stricter judgment. Verse 4, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they have despised the law of the Lord and have not kept his commandments. And this is the key here. And their lies cause them to err, after the which their fathers have walked. You know, we have a choice how we're going to walk. Albert Barnes made this comment. Since they rejected and despised these, this is the commandments and the law of God, then, in course, their lies deceived them. That is, their idols, lies on their part who made them and worshipped them for the true God and lies and lying to them as deceiving their hopes. For an idol is nothing in the world, 1 Corinthians 8.4. As neither are all the vanities in the world whereof people make idols, but they deceive by a vain show as though they were something. You know, they wanted to believe these things. They were happy to go out and chop down a tree and make something of it, carve it and say, well, this is our God, or to make a, a golden calf or whatever they were doing. They deceived themselves. Again, Jerome makes this comment, uh, they would not have been deceived by their idols unless they had first rejected the law of the Lord and not done his commandments. They had sinned with a high hand, despising and so rejecting the law of God. And so he despised and rejected them, leaving them to be deceived by their lies, which they themselves have chosen. So it ever is with man. Man must either love God's law and hate and abhor lies, quote from Psalm 119, verse 163, or he will despise God's law and cleave to lies. Let me read that again. That's really powerful. Man must either love God's law and hate and abhor lies, or he will despise God's law and cleave to lies. They are two choices in life. Verse 5 goes on, But I will send a fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem. It's interesting because one of the first prophetic warnings to the nation that Jerusalem itself will be destroyed. Of course, Jerusalem was the city of, of King David. It was the place where the kings of the south had all ruled and reigned, and David and Solomon particularly, and so on. You know, but now Amos, some 800 BC, around about that time, 
between eight and seven fifty, makes these these statements. Not that just God is going to bring judgment on Judah and on Jerusalem and on Israel, but on Jerusalem itself. Albert Barnes again says this: All know now how Jerusalem, its temple, and its palaces perished by fire, first by Nebuchadnezzar and then by the Romans. We know that as history. Yet some two centuries passed before that first destruction came. The ungodly Jews flattered themselves that it would never come. So we know that a fiery stream, Daniel 7 verse 10, will issue and come forth from him, a fire that consumes the destruction, quote from Job 31 verse 12. All who, whether or no they are in the body of the church, are not of the heavenly Jerusalem dead members in the body which belongs to the living head. He's speaking of people that are part of the church but don't have a real relationship with the Lord. He goes on and says, uh, and it will not the less come because it is not regarded. Rather, the very condition of all God's judgments is to be disregarded and to come, and then most to come when they are most disregarded. You know, people may say, oh, I don't believe God will judge and do that, you know. And people today may not believe that God will bring his judgment on the church. And yet Peter says that the season of judgment is going to commence, it's going to begin with the house of God. And again, with all of these things, we see history repeating. It's that prophetic pattern that we've seen before. The things that Amos was speaking of, of applied to his day and were fulfilled in his day. And yet we see a foreshadowing of what is to come as well. That Israel's enemies around them will be judged, just as we've seen Amos speak of. Ezekiel 38 39 speaks of something that is yet to come when the nations around Israel will again be judged. And then, just as in Amos, the attention turns to Israel Judah. So God's attention in the days yet to come will turn to Israel. And Israel again will be judged, including Jerusalem. They're going to be subject to God's judgment. You know, we are, I believe, witnessing a prophetic rerun of the book of Amos today. And we looked last week at just again how incredible those prophecies were. And all those nations that are mentioned in Amos are struggling and going through incredible difficulties today. Ecclesiastes 1.9 says, The thing that has been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. You know, history repeats. And in essence, is what this says. Verse 6, now the attention shifts and will stay on the northern kingdom of Israel. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four. So once again, the same idea is applied as was applied to the Gentiles, as was applied to Judah. On Israel, you have got to the line, you've crossed the line, you've gone over the line. For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver, and the poor for a pair of shoes. I mean, it's a horrible picture that paints if you stop and think about it. They didn't care about people. They didn't care about the poor in the land. They just cared about what they can get. It's like Israel's iniquity was full to overflowing. They were given over to materialism, what they could get. They didn't care what it cost other people or what hurt came to them. It says, that pants after the dust of the earth on the head of the poor. That may seem like a strange statement. What it seems to imply is that they were, is as if they, you know, they wanted the dust that was on the poor person's head. It's like even the stupid things that, that have no benefit to them, they would take 
They didn't care. And he says, and turn aside the way of the meek. And the man and his father will go in unto the same maid to profane my holy name. Now again, that's the idea there. There were temple prostitutes in the northern kingdom. And it was seen to be part of their acts of worship to Astarte, this pagan god, goddess. They would go and have these relationships. Again, this is why God was bringing this. Because, notice the statement there, because to profane my holy name. We'll mention that again in a moment. But verse 8 goes on, it says, And they lay themselves down upon clothes laid to pledge by every altar, and they drink the wine of the condemned in the house of their God. Now again, see that they're given to injustice, they're given to immorality, idolatry. And then that last one, just a comment there about the lay themselves down upon clothes. It says, uh, again, the garments or beds which the poor had pledged, they retained contrary to the law which required that such things should be restored before the setting of the sun. So if somebody was poor and they they needed something, they would give a pledge, maybe their coat or something else. But the law stated that if if they did that and you lent them some money or whatever it was that happened, that you would give them their coat back before the end of the day so they would be warm for the night. But this is saying that they didn't do that. They didn't give those things back. They laid themselves down on the clothes. They were okay. They didn't care for the poor. And the last one there, it, says, it may be understood that they're, um, they're appropriating to themselves that wine which is allowed to criminals to mitigate their sufferings in the article of death, which was the excess of inhumanity and cruelty. So the last comment there, and they drink the wine of the condemned. Those that were sentenced to death, that were being punished for whatever crime, whatever, were typically allowed to drink from wine, a bit like a, a narcotic to, to take away the pain, but like an anesthetic in a sense. And they wouldn't, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't give them that. They would take the wine for themselves. Again, it was just really cruel. Notice again, just go back. Uh, it was to profane my holy name. That was again the contention that God has. It's not just the sin, but it's the fact that they were sinning against the knowledge of God that they'd had. So God now gives reasons why the necessity of judgment upon Israel is unfathomable. You know, God has got to destroy them, got to judge them because of their iniquity, and this is why. God says to them, Yet destroyed I the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and he was strong as the oaks, yet I destroyed his fruit from above and his roots from beneath. Okay, so the picture here is of Joshua and the children of Israel crossing over the Jordan into the promised land after they filled 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, and they meet these giants in the land. You know, Jericho and Ai and all the other cities in the land. And God gives them victory. And God's saying, yeah, I destroyed. Look what I did for you, Israel. All that I've done for you, and you're turning from me. You've turned from me. Verse 10, also I brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you 40 years through the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorites. Just a little side comment here. Notice here that the giant issue that we read about in Genesis 6 isn't just confined to Genesis 6. It reverberates through the whole of the Old Testament. There are people that will try and say, oh, that, you know, the Genesis 6, 6 thing is, doesn't really speak about real giants. That, that's silly. Oh, well, no, no, it does. Scripture is very, very clear. You don't need to read through the rest of the Torah, particularly opening chapters of Deuteronomy, to see the reality that they really were people of enormous physical stature. They were the offspring of angels and women of the earth. And as uncomfortable as that may seem, it is what Scripture says, it's what the Old Testament clearly speaks of, it's what the New Testament speaks of. 
and Jude and Peter and so on. And it caused a real problem. The reason was that Satan was trying to make impossible a way for the seed of the woman to come into this world. And all through the Old Testament, Satan is, if I use the expression, I use it in the right context, Satan was hell-bent on trying to stop God's plan of bringing a savior into this world. And the giant problem was just one of the ways that he tried to do that. But here again, it's referred to, it's mentioned. Verse 11, I raised up your sons for prophets and of your young men for Nazarites. Okay, Nazarites, they were those, we're told in Scripture, in the Torah, that if somebody wanted to make a particular vow to the Lord, that they would do certain things. Samson, for example, was not to drink strong wine for his entire life, and he was not to cut his hair. They were two of the things. Now, for most Nazarites, it would be for a short period of time. Samson, it was a lifelong vow that was uh, uh, settled before God. And, of course, he loses his strength. The spirit leaves him when he breaks that vow. And, of course, when his hair grows, the spirit comes back and, you know, the account. But we're told here that God says, I raised up your sons for prophets and of young young men for Nazarites. Is it not even thus, O you children of Israel, says the Lord? It's like God's giving a little history lesson. Saying, Don't you remember this? But you gave the Nazarites wine to drink. They corrupted these people that were trying to live rightly and serve and honor God and commanded the prophets prophets are saying prophesy not in other words la, 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 I can't hear you don't want to listen to you that's what the, they were saying yeah and it's a sure sign of departure from God when we try to silence his voice in our lives and don't think it was just Israel that this happened to it happens in our own lives too there are times that we don't want to listen to God because we don't like the things that God says and it might be something as simple as God saying to you wait. It might be something as simple as God saying to you, be patient. Trust me. Don't do what you think you should do. There's a way that seems right to a man. You know, sometimes we want to silence that voice and pretend we haven't heard God. Well, Israel were doing just the same thing. They're saying to the prophets, don't, don't speak to us. We don't want to hear. It doesn't make it not true because you don't want to listen to it. Verse 20 goes on, Woe unto them that call you, oh sorry, this is um, from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 5, picking up verse 20. Uh, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light and light for darkness, that bitter, put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. This is what they were doing. Isaiah was saying this to the southern kingdom, as Amos is saying this to the northern kingdom. Back into Amos, picking up chapter 2, verse 13. Behold, I am pressed under you. Interesting expression. It says, as a cart is pressed that is full of sheaves. You know, you're talking about, you know, a cart, the, you know, oxen or whatever would, would pull along full of sheaves. It would be very heavy. Amos, his name means burden bearer. And God says, you are a burden. I am pressed under you. It's an interesting expression that's used here. Therefore, the flight shall perish from the swift and the strong shall not strengthen his force. Neither shall the mighty deliver himself. They were very confident in their own abilities, their own strengths to deliver themselves, just as the world, by the way, is going to be when we get further down the line, when we get to the world gets to the time of the tribulation. Oh, they'll be confident that they can defeat God. No. 
Verse 15, neither shall he stand that handleth the bow, and he that is swift of foot shall not deliver himself, neither shall he that rideth the horse deliver himself. And he that is courageous among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, says the Lord. You know, we can become more vulnerable in our perceived strengths than in our acknowledged weaknesses. And they were so confident in their own ability, confident in what they could do. And the Lord says, no. Okay, so that's the first two chapters. Let's build on this, and we can now start to look at the guilt and the punishment that God is decreeing upon the nation. So we're going to chapter 3, verse 1. Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. You see, God reminding them of the relationship they had, of what he'd done for them. It was only this nation of Israel that God had chosen for himself, and now they're in this predicament. And then a well-known verse, I'm sure you've heard it it quoted in some of the songs we sing and so on. Verse 3, can two walk together except they be agreed? I mean, it's a rhetorical question. But you can't walk with somebody if you're, if you're not in agreement with them. I mean, again, the kind of pictures painted of, of two uh, oxen walking side by side, the one that's strong, the one that's weak. You know, they're not going to be able to plow. They're not going to be able to go straight together. You're just going to go in, in a circle or you're going to veer off. You know, you can't walk together with somebody unless you're in agreement. And this is what God is saying to Israel. You know, that, that I, I'm going to bring judgment upon you. We're not walking together. You've chosen to walk your path. And therefore, there has to be repercussions. Again, the same applies. It's often used this verse 3 in regard to relationships and marriages and so on. You know, and it's so important that in a, in a Christian relationship, both parties know the Lord. You can't walk with somebody if you're not in agreement. If the most important thing in your life is Jesus Christ, but your partner cares nothing for Jesus Christ. It goes back to that quote we said at the beginning. You either... You reject the lies and you follow God, or you follow the lies and you reject God. You know, and that's the reality. You can't live in a relationship comfortably for very long without it becoming a real challenge and a problem. Verse 4, we go on. Will a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Will a young lion cry out of his den if he's taken nothing? Let me just read from uh, this commentary. Uh, But uh, by this verse, he intimates that God does not cry out for nothing by his prophets. For ungodly men suppose that the air was only made to reverberate by an empty sound. When the prophets threatened, these, they said, are mere words. As though indeed they could not find the necessity of crying arose from themselves because they provoked God by their voices, or by their vices. Hence the prophet, meeting their objection, says... If lions roar not, except when they have obtained a prey, shall God cry from heaven and send forth his voice as far as the earth when there is no prey? The meaning is that the word of God was very shamefully despised by the Israelites, as though there were no reason for crying, as though God was trifling with them. His word is indeed precious, and it's not thrown heedlessly into the air, as if it were mere refuse, but it is an invaluable seed. And since the Lord cries, It is not, says Amos, with a lawful cause, 
How so? The lions do not indeed roar without prey. God then does not cry by his prophets except for the best reason. So they were saying, well, you know, none of this matters and, you know, God's not going to judge us and the prophets can say what they want, but it's meaningless. No, no. As John Calvin points out here, God was saying these things to his prophet because there really was a cause. There was a reason. These ideas carry on. They build. Can a bird fall into a snare upon the earth where no gin is for him? It's not gin that you drink. It's like a snare, like a trap. Um, shall one take up a snare from the earth and have nothing uh, at all? Okay, so uh, the word uh, jinn is moshka, and again, it just seems to me, or it means uh, bait, lure, snare, trap, that kind of idea. Uh, so shall one take up a snare, Adam Clark says, and have nothing? Will the snare be removed before it has caught the expected prey? That's the idea that's being conveyed. So shall I remove my judgments until they are fully accomplished is a way that we can understand what Amos was saying here. Adam Clark just says this, Will then the jaws of such a trap suddenly spring up from the ground on which before they were lying flat and catch nothing? You know, if a trap is set, it's not going to go off unless there's a reason, unless it's triggered. That's the point. God is saying, you are triggering my judgment. Shall they let the prey that was within them escape? Certainly not. So my trap is laid for these offenders, and when it springs up, and they themselves will soon by their transgressions free the key, as in set the trap off, Shall not the whole family of Israel be enclosed in it? Most certainly they shall. So God is giving these expressions, which may be a little bit hard in the English to, to comprehend straight away, but you get the idea. God is showing them that there's reason for judgment. This isn't just a trivial thing, that they deserve it. Verse 6 goes on. Shall a trumpet be blown in the city and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in the city and the Lord has not done it? Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he reveals his secret unto his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, but who can prophesy? So again, these ideas building the same thing. The judgment is due, and they can't complain about it. Now, just to mention here, verse 7, really key verse. Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he reveals his secret unto his servants, the prophets. It's simply saying that God has committed to reveal his plans through his prophets. All right, And this verse should provoke diligent study because it says to us that everything that is going to happen, God has revealed in his word. We may not have every single little detail of every scenario and situation, but God has given the outline from the beginning of time to the end of time. It's all in God's word, the whole panorama of history, all that is yet to come, all that's going on now in this country. All that is yet to come is all revealed in his word by the prophets. God will not add to it. It's complete. God reveals the things that he's going to do by the ministry of the prophets. Published in the palaces of Ashdod. Now Ashdod again being one of the principal cities of the Philistines down in Gaza. And in the palaces in the land of Egypt. Okay, so it's like speaking to these neighboring nations now. And say, assemble yourselves upon the mountains of Samaria. And behold, the great tumults in the midst thereof. And the oppressed in the midst thereof. For they know not to do right, says the Lord, who store up violence and robbery in their palaces. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary there shall be even round about the land, and he shall bring down thy strength from thee, and thy palaces shall be spoiled. So God is saying that he's going to use the surrounding nations to bring judgment upon Israel. Thus says the Lord God, as the shepherd takes out of the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, 
Sorry for that picture on a Sunday just before you're going to go and enjoy your lunch, but you know, just, just dwell on that for a moment. Um, so, so shall the children of Israel be taken out, uh, that dwell in Samaria, in the corner of a bed, and in Damascus, Damascus, in a couch. Okay, let me try to unravel that a little bit. So it's simply saying that when God brings his judgment, there's only going to be enough left to identify you, but nothing else. Okay, you're going to recognize that it was a sheep, but you just got an ear. That's all you have left. That's the picture. That's the way when God brings his judgment upon them, that's how it's going to be. Just trying to convey to them how serious this issue really is. Uh, just another comment here, that kind of corner, uh, the, the, um, the dwelling in Samaria in the corner of a bed and in Damascus in a couch. Uh, one commentator made this comment. As the corner is the most honorable place in the East. So imagine in a home, the corner would seem to be, you, you've all got a favorite chair at home, haven't you? That place you like to sit. You know, you know how awkward it is when you invite somebody around and they sit in it. Okay, well, the, the corner would seem to be that honorable place where, where that's where the, the host would be sat. Uh, okay, in the corner of the couch, in the corner of a room, is the place of uh, the greatest distinction. So the words in the text may seem to mean that even in metropolitan cities, uh, which are in the corner and the most honorable place of the land, whether they're in Samaria in Israel or Damascus in Syria, they're not going to escape these judgments. That's, that's the idea that's being conveyed here. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar would only leave a tiny remnant left in the land. Verse 13, hear you and testify in the house of Jacob, saith the Lord God, the God of hosts. In that day shall I visit the transgressions of Israel upon him. I will also visit the altars of Bethel. Again, notice Bethel comes up again. And the horns of the altar shall be cut off, these places where immorality and idolatry have been committed, and fall to the ground. Verse 15, I will smite the winter house and the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall have an end, saith the Lord. Just to help us understand, Adam Clark uh, makes this comment. Those remarkable uh, for their magnificence. He's speaking of these houses and their ornaments, uh, not built of ivory, but in which ivory vessels, ornaments, and inlaid abound. So these houses, they weren't made of ivory, but they had lots of ivory in them. They were very wealthy, it's implying. Thus then, the winter houses, and the summer houses, and the great houses, and the houses of uncommon splendor shall all perish. That's the idea. The summer houses, wherever they were, you know, typically the wealthy would have their summer houses they would go and abide in the summer, and then places of safety that they'd winter in. And God says it's all going to be destroyed. There shall not be a total, or sorry, there should be a total desolation in the land. No kind of house should be a refuge, and no kind of habitation should be spared. So running through this chapter because it's just narrative effectively, but hear this word, you kind of Bashan. Interesting. Uh, we have reference to the bulls of Bashan, uh, even at the time of the cross. Interesting. I'll let you take that further if you want to dig into that, but it's quite an interesting thought. He, he, this word, you kind of Bashan, that are in the mountain of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, bring and let us drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness, that lo, the day shall come upon you that he will take you away with hooks and your prosperity with fish hooks. That's exactly what the Assyrians did. They would literally put hooks through their ears and noses, chain them together and lead them away. And you shall go out at the breaches, every cow at that uh, which is before her, you shall cast them into the um, uh, palace, uh, saith the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress. And Gilgal, multiply transgression and bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years. Of course, this is all spoken with a bit of sarcasm on God's part here. 
They said, well, why don't you just come to Bethel then and transgress, go and get on with it. And Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years. I mean, they were supposed to tithe regularly, not just when they felt like it. And offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven, which of course was against the law. And proclaim and publish the free offerings. For this, like if you, O children of Israel, says the Lord. Almost the Lord poking fun at them because of the stupidity of their attitude. But it is what they had done. And I also have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and want of bread in all your um, places. The idea, of course, is you've got clean teeth, you're not eating food. So they, God had allowed them to go through times of hunger, times of famine. Yet you have, have you not returned unto me, says the Lord. Verse 7, and also I have withhold the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. And I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon and the piece whereupon it rained uh, not withered. So two or three cities wandered unto one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet have you not returned unto me, says the Lord. So first of all, God says, in the previous verse, that he's allowed famine to come. Then he's saying that the, you know, the, the rain he'd withheld, that still didn't cause them to turn. Verse 9, I've smitten you with the blasting and mildew. When your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased, the palmer worm devoured them, yet you have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. God's saying, I've given you warning after warning after warning. Verse 10, I've sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Your young men have I slain with the sword and have taken away your horses, and I have made you made the stink of your camps to come up unto your nostrils. Yet have you not returned to me, says the Lord. You see, you just you feel the grace of God in all of these things. The Lord allowed them to go through these troubles, different situations, and yet none of them caused them to turn to the Lord. They just carried on this path they chosen. Verse eleven. I've overthrown some of you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you are as a firebrand plucked out of the burning, yet have you not returned unto me, says the Lord. Therefore thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. Wow, what a statement. God is saying, I gave you plenty of opportunity. Try to get your attention, and you didn't turn. Therefore this is what I'm going to do. And because I will do this unto thee, notice Prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. You know, is there a clearer prophecy than this? And is there anything more frightening than God saying to them, okay, get ready to square up to me now. Now we're going to go face to face. For lo, he that formeth the mountains and creates the wind and declareth unto man what is his thought, that maketh the morning darkness and treadeth upon the high places of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. We'll leave it there. We'll pick up chapter 5, Lord willing, next time. What a statement, prepared to meet your God. Let's bow our hearts. Father, as we just mull over these things, we think of the impact of what was being said by Amos. The Lord, you have been gracious. You'd allowed situations in their lives, the lives of the people of Israel, to draw them back to you, to remind them how much they needed you. And yet, Lord, they'd chosen to carry on down their path. Lord, your word says, blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Lord, you've told us the way to walk. Oh, Father, we're foolish if we choose not to. So help us, Lord, not to make the mistakes that Israel made. Help us as individuals 
Lord, as a fellowship, as a country, Lord, to follow you, to walk with you. And Lord, we do pray for our nation, for Lord, we recognize these same traits that we see being judged here in Israel, or Lord, existing today in our own land. Father, please help us, though, in our own lives to walk with you. Lord, to follow you, to recognize all that you've done for us, delivering us from the slavery and the bondage of sin, providing for us, Lord, giving us all that we've ever needed, promising to provide exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So, Lord, may we follow you and trust you. We ask this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.